Why does this congregation exist? Why is the Franklin Church of Christ here? Paul answered this question for us in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul wrote to the brethren of Ephesus. Let me start over. Paul wrote to the brethren of Ephesus. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Why does any church exist? In order to glorify God in heaven. The Franklin Church of Christ does not exist in order to meet three times a week. It does not exist in order to have a nice building. We don't exist in order to run an awesome Bible class program. We exist in order to glorify our God in heaven. And everything we do should be to that end. How would we accomplish that? I think if we continue to study this passage and we were to continue reading, often because of a chapter break we might stop, but let's just move on into the next chapter. He says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And on he continues. Paul says that we are here to glorify God. He says, therefore, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. He says, therefore, because we are here to glorify God, there are some things that we need to do. And as he continues on explaining what it is that we need to do in order to glorify our God in heaven, his number one theme, his main point, is about unity. He points out that if we want to glorify our God in heaven, we've got to be united as a congregation, working together to a common end, for a common goal, in union with one another. If we're going to serve our God, we've got to be United. But how do we do that? First of all, we need to recognize that there are some standards of unity around which we must unite. In our modern religious world, folks today with their denominational division constantly cry out for unity. They're constantly telling us we need to bring all these walls down and yet the walls continue to stay there. On Sunday morning, the religious world is divided, teaching all kinds of different things, worshiping in different ways. We're told that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you say Jesus is Lord. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We don't get to just say Jesus is our Lord. If He's our Lord, we've got to do what the Father says. If we're going to have unity, we've got to unite around God's standards for union. 
There are so many people today that claim to want unity, and yet it seems that very few want to hold to a standard. But we must do that. Paul tells us the standard of unity in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4, Paul said, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He starts off by saying there is one body. Jesus the Christ came to this earth to establish His church. And we are not allowed to establish our own churches. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, I also say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We are not allowed to establish our own churches in competition with the one body that Christ established. We need to unify around that. He goes on to say that there is one Spirit. Look in John chapter 16 and verse 13. As we consider this Spirit, we're often tempted to get into touchy-feely ideas, but I think the point that he's honing in on here in Ephesians chapter 4 is what Jesus pointed out in John 16:13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. The Spirit was coming in order to teach the apostles all truth. He is the one source of our teaching. And we need to go to what He has said in order to teach. If we use any other source, if His church... Christ church, the one body, uses any other source than the Spirit's revelation of truth, then we will not have unity. We need to unify around that. He goes on to say that we were called in one hope of our calling. There's only one hope that we have that is all-encompassing of why we're Christians. Titus chapter 3 and verse 7 explains... In Titus chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul wrote, Having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here is our hope, our earnest expectation, not just a wish or a whim, but our earnest expectation that we are looking forward to eternal life in heaven. No doubt there are lots of blessings that come with being a Christian. Lots of blessings in this world. But if our hope as individual Christians and as a church stops short of this hope, then we'll not have unity. If above all what we hope for are material possessions or social reform or physical health or whatever else we might think of, we'll not find unity. But when we can unify around this, our great and only hope that matters, eternal life, then we can have unity. Paul went on to say that there is one Lord. On the day of Pentecost, Peter pointed this out in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, as he spoke to that crowd, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the sovereign. 
the only one. But this is more than just a statement. This is more than just a confession that we make with our mouths. Luke chapter 6 and verse 46 points out, as Jesus asked this question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Luke 6.46 If Jesus is our one Lord and we're uniting around Him, we're going to unite around what He says. This is God's standard for us regarding unity. He said that there is one faith. The modern system of multiple faiths is unfounded in God's Word. Have you heard folks say, are you a Christian? Oh yeah. What faith are you? That shouldn't even be a question in our vocabulary. Because Paul pointed out there is but one faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 saying to them, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If we're going to have this one faith, where must it come? It must come not from the creeds of men, not from the councils of men, not from the Pope or some confederation or some judicial system in some church. It must come from the word of God. And God's Word alone. That's where we'll come across the one faith around which we must unify. Paul continued in the book of Ephesians as he described the unity that we must have. He said there is but one baptism. There is only one way to submit to the one Lord. To obey the revelation of the one Spirit. To honor the one God and Father of all. There's only one way to enter into the one body. There's only one way to answer the calling of hope. There's only one way to proclaim the one faith. And that's through the one baptism. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter proclaimed it. On the day of Pentecost, as they shouted out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift there being salvation. He points out to them this one baptism. And he goes on to say that the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Through this, we're added to the one body. No doubt there are other dunkings in water that have occurred. Or other baptisms used, however that word might be used. But this is the one that enters us into the one body. This is the one that obeys the one Lord, that answers the call. Only one. And we need to unify around that. Otherwise, we'll never have unity. And he concludes with his climax, that there is one God and Father of all. There's not a God for the Jews. There's not a God for the Gentiles. There's not a God for white folks and a God for black folks and a God for Hispanic folks. There is one God. And we must follow Him. Not only is there not a different God for different kinds of people, Paul is pointing out that there is not a multiplicity that we try to divide our service to. Matthew 6.24, Jesus pointed out in Matthew chapter 6, And verse 24, no one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man or material possessions. We can't have more than one God in our lives. We can't try to divide our service up among different deities in our lives, whether pleasure or money or ourselves or whatever else we might serve. There is but one God, and we must unify around Him, submitting to Him. However, it's very easy to talk about these standards, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one calling, one Lord, one God, one Spirit. That's very easy to proclaim that. We can all say that, can't we? But what does it take to actually accomplish unity around these standards? What is it that you and I have to be doing as members of this congregation, or if you're a guest with us, as members of whatever congregation you're a part of, what is it that we've got to do in order to be united as a body of Christ? Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 explained that as well. He began off with the general statement, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. If we're going to be united, every single one of us must be walking worthy of the calling with which we were called. If we're going to walk according to some other pattern, we will not have unity. He goes on throughout the latter part of this book to talk about various activities and actions and things that we must do in order to walk worthy of our calling. He talks about how we're supposed to talk to how we're supposed to talk while we're angry. He talks about how we're supposed to behave in work and how we're supposed to behave at home. But instead of looking at all those various activities, I want you to notice some attitudes that Paul demonstrated we must have in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul said that we must behave with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to notice four attitudes in this passage that Paul presented that you and I have to have. Do you want unity in this congregation? Do we want to avoid division and controversy and conflict? Then we've got to have these four attitudes. The very first one you'll notice, he said, is that we've got to have lowliness or humility. Flip over a few pages to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 3 where Paul there said in Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Lowliness of mind, according to Strong's enhanced lexicon. That term means to have a deep sense of one's own moral littleness. Let me repeat that. A deep sense of one's own moral littleness. That's lowliness. That's the attitude that we must have. We don't get to stand up on the pinnacle looking down on all this other riffraff of brethren around us thinking that we are the pinnacle of maturity in Christ. Oh, if everyone would just be more like me, how much better this world would be. No, we need to realize that others are better than us. Instead of looking down at others, we need to realize we're actually looking up at others. They are the ones that are more important. But that's tough, isn't it? Because we want to say to ourselves, I am smarter, I am stronger, I am the one who ought to be listened to. 
people ought to be more like us. But brethren, we need to realize if people become more like me and if they become more like you, all they're going to be is sinners who deserve to go to hell. We should all recognize that our goal is to be more like Christ. And while we strive to live exemplary lives, we must never try to pass ourselves off to others as though we are the example. But rather that Christ is our example and we're all striving to be like Him. If we want to have unity, we've got to have humility. Lowliness before others. Paul went on pointing out not only must we have lowliness, but we must also have gentleness. This is probably one of the most difficult biblical concepts for us to define, especially because for some reason in the translations that have meekness, we attribute to that the idea of weakness. But that's not at all the case. The idea of gentleness and meekness is not the idea of weakness. Rather, it's the opposite of violence and harshness. Titus chapter 3 and verse 2, at least in the King James Version, demonstrates the contrast and the definition. The New King James says, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility. In the King James translation it says, that we're to speak evil of no one, not brawlers, but gentle, showing all humility. Not a brawler, but gentle. The idea of having the attitude of gentleness means I'm not walking around looking for opportunities to jump all over everybody. I'm not trying to find that opportunity where I can point out what everybody's doing wrong so I can put them in their place and I can lord it over them. Rather, I am gentle. I'm wanting to look for things where I can point out, here's what you're doing right. Here's where you need to grow. Here's Keep it up. No doubt there are going to be times when I have to confront folks with sin. I have to talk to them about the things that they're doing wrong. I have to admonish them, exhort them. But I need to do it out of gentleness. Not out of a desire to put them in their places. Not out of a desire to say, look at me and how awesome I am and you ought to be more like me. But out of a desire for love. And a desire to help them go to heaven. That's what I ought to be doing. Speaking from gentleness. If we're going to have unity, we've got to learn to be gentle with one another. Which goes into the third thing that Paul says. I've got to be long-suffering. I've got to be patient. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, Peter pointed out that when we become Christians, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. When we come into Christ, what are we spiritually? We're little babies. And as folks come into the body of Christ, we need to realize that's exactly what they are. They're little babies in Christ. And we need to treat them like that. Not in the sense of treating them as children, but in the sense of recognizing that they've got a long way to grow, just like we still have a long way to grow. And with patience and with long-suffering, we need to help them along. I want you to think about this. Most of us here have had kids. You remember when that little baby just started walking? And of course, what did you want? Oh, we want him to walk. We want him to get up on those feet and put one foot in front of the other. And of course, what you did is that baby started to, started to pull up on something but then fell over. He didn't succeed. So you went and grabbed your belt and you just beat the daylights out of him, right? Did you do that? No, what did you do? That's awesome. You went and called your wife or your husband. You called grandma and said, he pulled up. Right? And then when they first started that one step, and fell over. 
What'd you do? All right, buddy, you better straighten out. I'm not putting up with this anymore. Is that what we did? No. We got out the director. We started calling folks. Why? Because they're little babies and we understand that. And we're excited about every step they take. But with spiritual babies, for some reason, we're actually irritated with them until they actually finally reach maturity, if they ever do. And even then, we often look for chinks in their armor for which we can jump on them about. But we need to realize that this is a growth process. People are growing. They're becoming more mature. And we need to be patient and long-suffering with them. Not turning our heads aside when they're living in rebellious sin. I understand that. But recognizing that they're struggling like we're struggling. And have struggled. And we need to have patience and long-suffering. Helping them along. Just like we did our little babies when they were learning how to walk. Because that's what we're all doing, isn't it? We're learning how to walk worthy of our calling. And if we're going to have unity, we've got to have patience. He went on to point out the fourth attitude that we need to have. Bearing with one another in love. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 points out, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. I haven't been here that long, but I imagine, folks, that you guys have sinned against one another. Man, I'm having trouble today. You guys have sinned against one another at some time. Feelings got hurt. People had to apologize. And probably somewhere along the line, somebody's held grudges. Did that help with unity? Absolutely not. Peter said, have love, because that will cover a multitude of sins. When I love folks, and they come to me saying, I'm sorry, this is what I did to you. Love can cover that. But when I don't love them, what happens in the relationship? A friend of mine used to say, you know, when you love somebody, you can be eating lunch with them and they can dump their whole bowl of soup in your lap and it won't matter. But if you don't love them, the way they hold their soup spoon will irritate the daylights out of you. Love covers a multitude of sins. One of the problems, though, is is that we don't spend much of our lives living in love for one another. We spend most of our time loving ourselves. Thinking about how everybody else ought to treat us instead of how we ought to treat others. Paul said we've got to bear with one another in love. Enduring our relationship with one another because whenever people get together, it's tough. And we've got to endure it with love. Looking at how we behave. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about three different people. I want you to think of the rottenest, sinning scoundrel that you know. Now I want you to think of a second person. I want you to think of the person who irritates you and annoys you more than anybody else that you know. And now I want you to think of a third person. I want you to think of the most weird, odd, different Kind of, you know, the ones that are just cut from a different mold, they're just kind of odd. You just have to sit back and you say about them, they're just different. You know what I'm talking about, right? Do you want to know what all three of those people have in common and what they have in common with you? Jesus died for all four of you. Because he loved all four of you. And John points out in 1 John chapter 4, 
and verse 11. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How much should we love one another? Look around at your brethren here. God loved them so much, He sent His Son to die for them. How much more should we love them? And if we bear with one another with love, we'll have unity. But now the final question. We've seen the standard that we've got to have for unity. We've recognized the attitudes that must prevail in order to have unity. But now let's talk about the responsibility. Who is supposed to accomplish this unity? Whose job is it to make sure that this church is united? We typically have the idea, well, that's the elder's job. They're the ones that are supposed to make sure that there's unity here. That's the preacher's job. He's supposed to preach lessons that cause us to be united. That's not what Paul says. If you look back in Ephesians chapter 4 and we begin in verse 7. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Verse 15. But, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What do we find in this lengthy passage? God gave grace to each one of us. He's given gifts and abilities to each one of us. And He expects us all to use them in order to accomplish unity. No doubt, He gave some to be pastors and some to be evangelists. But He didn't give those roles in order to cause all the work to be done, saying that they should do the work of unity. Notice what it says there again. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. What are they supposed to be equipping them for? For the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. What are those roles given for? To equip the rest of us. Why? So we can minister to one another. So we can edify one another. Why? So we can be united. Whose job is it to make sure that this congregation is united? It's your job. It's my job. It's everybody's job. We must all be working to accomplish this unity. And we must all do it no matter what we see everybody else doing. We may see others that aren't acting the way they're supposed to. And we may look at them and we may get a little discouraged at times. But our job is just do what we're supposed to do. Walk worthy of the calling. Unite around God's standards. Live by those standards. And have the proper attitudes. 
And so my question now as we conclude is to you. What are you doing to make sure this congregation is united? Don't say, oh, well, I'm not doing anything that's going to cause us to be divided. It's not a passive thing. There in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 3, he said, endeavoring to keep the unity. What does endeavor mean? That word means to work hard. He doesn't say just be passive and make sure not to do any mean things. He says work hard. My question is not, are you doing anything that might cause division? My question is, are you doing anything that's going to help maintain unity? Or are you just showing up? Brethren, if all you're doing is just showing up, I want you to keep just showing up because hopefully you'll grow beyond that. But let me encourage you to grow beyond that. What are you doing to make sure this church is close and united around God's Word?